Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the process of change, psychotherapy, and the misguided idea that we all need fixing. I've been thinking about self-reflection and the challenges of seeing ourselves clearly from our own jaded perspective, and about showing compassion and realigning, and that good therapy and good therapists offer exactly this, so that we can learn to offer those same things to ourselves. Mostly, I've been thinking about Lori Gottlieb and her magic mirror that she holds up with such grace. It allows us to look deeply at ourselves because we feel safe and supported in truly seeing. The magic mirror casts our vision in an honest, welcoming, and compassionate light. My guest today is Lori Gottlieb. She is a psychotherapist and New York Times bestselling author who writes the weekly Dear Therapist advice column for The Atlantic, where she is also a contributing editor. She is at her core a graceful master who holds up this magic mirror for each of her clients and now all of her readers in her new book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, a therapist, her therapist, and our lives revealed. She creates a space for us to feel safe and supported while we gaze with eyes wide open into our existence and the crazy behaviors we've adopted to make it work and the self-defeating presumptions we use to limit our futures. Welcome, Lorian. Thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So I want to start by reading from the book jacket, just to set the stage. One day, Lori Gottlieb is a therapist who helps patients in her Los Angeles practice. The next, a crisis causes our world to come crashing down. Enter Wendell, the quirky but seasoned therapist in whose office she suddenly lands. With his balding head, cardigan, and khakis, he seems to have come straight from therapist central casting. Yet he will turn out to be anything but. I was thinking that sounds exactly like a screenplay, so I'm going to be surprised if that's the next thing in the works. Actually, it's um, it's being developed by Eva Longoria for a television series. Ah, so exciting. So your book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, you say asks, how do we change, and answers with in relation to others. So just a quick, what does that mean? And I know that's what we'll be talking about the whole interview, but sort of just the, the quick answer to that. I think sometimes it's very hard for us to see ourselves the way others see us. And what we do in therapy is we hold up a mirror to people and help them to see their reflection in a new way. And I think that's how we change is that we can see ourselves differently. We can see our situations differently. Um, We tell our stories differently when we can see it differently to mix metaphors for a second. Um, And I think that, that, it's very hard to change if you aren't aware of what's not working. And often what happens is you find out what's not working in relation with others. You say, I want to capture the process in which humans struggling to evolve push against their shells until they quietly, but sometimes loudly and slowly, but sometimes suddenly crack open. Um, What is the process for that? Right. So in, in the book, I follow four different patients And then there's a a fifth patient who's me. And I think in all of these stories, you see us fighting against the very thing that we need to see or the change that we need to make. And I think that change often happens like that, which is gradually and then suddenly, um, that it takes us a while to understand what's not working and why it's not working. And often we fight against that because we cling to the familiar, even if the familiar is 
unpleasant or even downright miserable, that it's very hard to go into a place of uncertainty, to go into a place of unfamiliarity. And so I think it takes a lot of work to do what you need to do to make those changes. And um, it's, a, it's a process of evolution. And why do you think it is so hard? Do you think it's hard for everyone? Do you think that's a, there's a reason that we're wired that way? Or do you think it's more a cultural experience that it's the way that we're brought up or the culture that we live in that we're so bound to, to what we know and not wanting to switch from it, even if it's unpleasant? Well, I think that humans don't do well with uncertainty. And I think that if you're leaving something that you know that involves a loss, and sometimes even the thing that we don't like will feel like a loss to us when we don't have it anymore. So it's very easy to, uh, you know, want to keep things the same, even though you're unhappy, than going off and trying something that can be very risky and very scary. So when, when we have like those Nike slogans, just do it, by the time somebody gets to the place that they're just doing it, they've done a lot of work in preparation to get to that place, even if they don't know it. There's, we, they go through these stages that I talk about in the book, the, the pre-contemplation, the contemplation, um, you know, before they get to the action phase. Okay, so let's talk about you then a little bit, because you're the anomaly then, because throughout your life, it's not incredible how your path to where you are now, you've, you've written two best-selling books, you had a stint on a top TV show in Hollywood, you were a medical school student, and not just anywhere, but Stanford University, you had a baby, um, became a journalist, and then a therapist, and then have written this book. And the thing that amazed me is you didn't seem like on your path that you were afraid to make a change. Like you were, you had this gauge that was like seeking satisfaction. And if it wasn't hitting the top of the meter, and it wasn't like you would try something and quit, but if it wasn't hitting the top of your meter, you're like, oh, not it, you know? Like, oh, is this it? Nope, this isn't it. I'm going to make a switch. What do you think gave you the confidence and the ability to do that? Well, I think that when I was making those changes, I very much was following some internal barometer that was very clear to me, even though it looked like, you know, because I kept switching, it looked like I was either very versatile or very confused. And I was probably a little bit of both. But when I look at my careers in hindsight, when I look at starting off in the entertainment business, working at NBC, um, you know, working on a show called ER, where I was hanging out in the emergency room a lot with one of our consultants who was a physician and realizing that even though I loved the fictional stories and the, the rich human dramas that we were capturing on television, I really loved the, the real stories, the real seeing real life happening in front of me. And that got me up to medical school. So I was dealing with story and the human condition in both of those careers. And then when I got to medical school and I realized that managed care was coming in and I probably wouldn't be able to be the fantasy that I had of the family doctor who kind of guides people through their lives and have those relationships and really get into, again, the human condition in the way that I wanted to. I left to become a journalist and um, I loved being a journalist. And I was able to really delve into people's stories that way. But then I had a baby and I realized I needed adult humans to talk to during the day. It was It was very isolating. I think a lot of new mothers maybe don't talk about that as much. And I called up the dean at Stanford where I had left medical school. And I said, maybe I should come back and do psychiatry. And she was very frank with me and said, you know, if you do psychiatry, 
you can do talk therapy, but you will probably end up prescribing Celexa for most of your day. And that's not what you were talking about wanting to do in medical school. So she suggested that I get a graduate degree in clinical psychology. And that's what I did. And it was the best advice that anybody could have given me because I went from journalism where I was telling people stories to psychotherapy where I can help people to change their stories. And so it might look like I made lots of very different kinds of changes, but I feel like they were all very much related to each other, even if I couldn't see it that way at the time. Well, I also think so inspiring. I loved when I read that part that you called the dean and said, oh, you know, maybe I want to come back and do this, where I think so many people would be like, oh, that door's closed. You know, oh, I left. I, I've, I, you know, maybe I made a mistake. No going back there. And you were just like, no, I think I'll call the dean and, and think about coming back. And I thought that was amazing. Well, you know, it got to the point. I think part of it was that, again, I think a lot of new mothers don't talk about this, but it can be really hard to be so isolated. And I was desperate. I was desperate to say, what can I do where I will get out in the world? Not that I didn't love being a mother. Being a mother, you know, was, was something I wanted very badly and was thrilled to, you know, be able to do that and have that in my life. Um but it was also a, a big shift in a lot of ways, especially for somebody who's used to having that intellectual engagement in, you know, professionally. And it got to the point where the UPS guy would come and he'd be delivering packages. And I'd say, how about those diapers? And how's the weather today? And he would literally back away to his big brown truck because I was trying to detain him just to have conversation with my UPS carrier. So I knew that something was terribly wrong in terms of the balance in my life. And I, I really wanted to explore what else I could do before it got really bad. And I'm sure he wanted to stay and talk to you, but they're on the time clock. The more deliveries they make, the more money they make. <laughs> I'm sure it was not personal. No, actually, no, he actually did want to avoid me. And we, we became friendly later on. And I write about that in the book, that, that he, he left to go back to school later when I, when I left to go back to school. So I went back to graduate school in, in clinical psychology and he went to school to finish up his degree and he became a contractor and the bookshelves in my office are actually built by him. So the, the whole story came full circle. It was, it actually became this very meaningful relationship for both of us, but, um, but he very much wanted to avoid me and, and he was very clear about that at that time. You mentioned that your approach to writing is the same as your approach to therapy, that you ask the same questions. What are some of those questions that you start with in both of those fields? I think story is very important in both of those fields. And story is the way that we make sense of ourselves and we make sense of the world around us. So I feel like when people come in with a story, I'm not just listening to the content of the story, what I call you know, I'm listening to the music under the lyrics. I'm listening to, here's the content of what they're saying, but what is the underlying pattern or struggle that got them into this particular situation right now? So I want to know how flexible they are with the story. And part of that involves my writer's brain, which is I feel like I'm sitting in the therapist chair and acting as an editor. Who are the major characters and who are the minor characters? Who are the heroes in this story? Who are the villains in this story? Um, does that make sense? What are some old stories that, you know, the person might be telling him or herself, like, I'm unlovable, or nothing will ever work out for me, or like in the case of the first patient that I introduced in the book, um, you know, I'm better than everybody else. What are these faulty narratives, and how can we rewrite them 
so that they, they make better sense today. Sometimes we're carrying around very old stories. It's kind of like wearing clothes that no longer fit. And people don't realize that these stories are driving their behaviors, their relationships, how they feel in the world, what risks they're willing to take, you know, what they're willing to go after or not. And so I really look at, you know, is the protagonist going in circles or is the protagonist moving forward? And if not, why not? So I really look at it from a story perspective. And are the cases that you feature in the book, the four cases you mentioned and then you're on, um, are they examples of exceptional patients or did you choose them to represent typical experiences? The latter. I chose them to represent typical experiences, but I was very intentional about the people that I chose in the sense that I didn't pick people I was currently working with because I felt that would contaminate the work that we were doing. And also I picked people who are very different from one another on purpose because I wanted people to, when they meet these people, they might think, oh, that's not me or I don't have a lot in common with that person. And I want them to see that they can find aspects of themselves in each of these people, including in in my story, because I'm the fifth patient going to my own therapy in the book. And so I think that, you know, we have this, this very narcissistic Hollywood producer who thinks he's better than everyone else, who's very insulting to me. He tells me he's coming to me because I'm a nobody and therefore he won't run into any of his high powered colleagues in the waiting room. Um, and, and when we see that his behavior is very much um, motivated by protection, like most of us. And, and later on, I think readers come to see him as the person they love the most in the book. But at the beginning of the book, a lot of people might say, well, I don't really want to read about him. I don't have anything in common with this obnoxious guy, but I think they'll come to find themselves very much in him. Even in that scene in the book, when I run into him at a Lakers game and I'm with my son and he's with another friend and his daughter and his friend's daughter, and he is being really obnoxious in the line at halftime. And on the one hand, I feel like, wow, he's being so obnoxious to the people in front of him in line. And on the other hand, I'm kind of cheering him on because I want to get back into the stadium too. I don't want to miss the second half. So, um, you know, I think we can all see aspects of ourselves in these people. In, in the young woman who's in her 20s and she keeps hooking up with the wrong guys, including one in the waiting room because she thinks it's a step up because she tells me at least he's in therapy. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't experience that in my 20s, but I can experience being stuck in these familiar patterns and not being able to get out. And I think in the, you know, in the, the older woman who is about to turn 70 and says that, um, you know, her adult children are estranged from her. She's made significant mistakes as a parent. She's had some marriages behind her. She doesn't know what can change at this point, but she says if, if nothing changes, she doesn't want to live another year. She doesn't want to be alive on her 70th birthday. I didn't have a lot in common with her either, but I could relate to a lot of what she was experiencing with some of the questions about how to love and be loved and isolation and, and regret and what we can't go back and change. And then there's the, the fourth patient is, is this young woman in her 30s who just got married and when she gets back from her honeymoon, she discovers that she has breast cancer, which seems at first that it's going to be very treatable, and it is. But then after that's treated, um, six months after she's clear, they find another form of cancer that's very aggressive, and it turns out she's going to die from that cancer. And she asked me if I'll stay with her until she dies. And I had never 
experience that kind of threat to my own mortality. And yet, as you see in the book, I was experiencing something with my own health that I wasn't willing to look at. And she made me look at that. And she made me look at my mortality. And I think all of our, all of our limited time on, on the earth and, and how we live in this, we live with this idea that we have forever. We have a very long time and how it really helps to have this awareness of the limited time we have so that we can live our lives now in the way that we want. So I think that even though when you ask how I chose these patients, my very long answer is that I chose them because I think that they represent all of us. And I want the reader to see that. And as you mentioned, something relatable, because that's something you experience as a therapist, that you have this guise being obnoxious and putting you down, that you need to be effective. You have to find a way to connect with him and also to relate to him, right? Something uh, that you can find likable um, and relatable to be able to, to work with him effectively. Right. So when I was doing my internship, a supervisor had said to us, there's something likable about everyone. It's your job to find it. And I thought, well, that sounds nice in theory, but there can't be like something likable about everyone. We all know people that we just don't like. But she was right. And, and I would say that with one caveat, which is that she was right in the sense that if somebody shares themselves with me, if I can really get to know them, they will inevitably be likable. But if they keep me out, I don't know if I like them. There's some people where you just can't get to know them because they are distracting you or if you try to get close to them, they run away. Or if you try to get them to focus on something instead of going off on tangent after tangent, they won't let you go there. And they can be really frustrating to work with, not because I don't like them, but because I don't know them well enough. I can't, I can't see them. And I think so many people want to hide the truth of who they are because they feel like if they put on that performance that they'll be more likable. But the truth is that if I can see who they really are, that's the glue. That's the thing that draws people in. And so many of us go around outside the therapy room as well, hiding ourselves from people. And, and that actually prevents people from really getting to know us. And if they really knew us, they would probably like us. So I think it's sort of this, you know, working at cross purposes where we act a certain way to be liked, and yet it's counterproductive to what we want. You say that therapy can only work if it's a joint endeavor. And um, I'm, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about the, the flip side of that, that the therapist has to be able to be comfortable when the person does open up with the vulnerability and the intimacy and, and be able to ride out those moments and stay present and open. Is that something that you kind of came in with or is that something that you needed to learn to be able to do? I think you have to learn how to do that. Um, I remember in my very first session, this uh, I was at a clinic, which is where we train. And it's sort of like in medical school where they say, see one, do one, teach one. Like you see someone put in an IV, you do one, and then you teach one. It's trial by fire with therapy too. So you go into a room for the very first time with somebody and this woman comes in, she's about 30 years old. And she says that the reason she's there is that she can't stop crying lately. And then as if on cue, she starts crying. And I mean, she's, she's really crying. She's like, you know, it's like a tsunami. And I'd never sat with somebody you know, five feet away from me. I know nothing about her. She's a complete stranger. And I don't know the basics like 
Do I look at her so that she knows that I'm with her and paying attention? Or should I look away so that she doesn't feel self-conscious? At a certain point when she's just crying and crying and crying, do I interrupt her and ask a question? Or do I just let her keep crying even if it goes on for what feels like an eternity? These are the things that you just don't know until you start seeing a lot of people and you get used to what it really means to be present and sit with somebody in their pain. Were you surprised by some of your behaviors in your own therapy that you behaved, I'm thinking of the crying and crying and crying, um, that you behaved like many of your clients had in therapy with you? Like, was that surprising to you? Was it something you noticed? Was it something you expected to happen? You know, when we're training, we have to do 500 hours of psychotherapy as part of our requirements for licensure. And I think it's very different being a patient when you're just starting out. But I think when you have already established a private practice and you've been doing therapy for years and then you go back to therapy, it's very hard to take off your therapist hat. And yet at the same time, you're just a person in that room. And so I do with my therapist everything that my patients do with me. Um, I want him to like me. And I think that that's something that most people want from their therapist. They wonder, you know, does my therapist like me? What does my therapist think about me? When I would leave my therapy sessions and I would see this woman, if she would come early for her session, which was right after mine, I would think, I wonder if he likes her sessions more than mine, or I wonder if he dreads my sessions and, and you know, can't wait for hers. Um, one night I Googled my therapist, and that was because uh, he had, the reason that I'd come to therapy was, was because of this unexpected breakup, and I had been Googling the ex-boyfriend, and um you know, making up all these stories in my head about, well, if he's posting pictures of salads on social media, he must not be heartbroken because people who are in the throes of heartbreak don't post pictures of salads on in restaurants on uh, social media. And my therapist said, you really need to stop doing that. It's really self-destructive. So when you feel the need to do that, do something else, do something different. So one night I was about to type in my ex-boyfriend's name into the search engine and I stopped myself. And I thought of my therapist who said, do something different. And then I typed in my therapist's name. And just out of curiosity, not that I was intending to really delve into, you know, what I might find, but just because I wanted to do something different. And I thought, well, I, I hadn't uh, researched him before I went in. And um, I found out that his, his father had died in middle age of a sudden heart attack. And his father had been a marathon runner. This is per the obituary I found. And I had been talking in my therapy sessions about my close relationship with my aging father and how important that was to me that we were having this opportunity to say goodbye and really spend that time together at the end of his life. And all of a sudden, now that I had this information, I did exactly what my patients do with me, which is I didn't want to admit it. I was filled with shame that I had Googled him and found out this information. And so I started editing myself in the therapy room. But with my patients, I've noticed that inevitably they slip up. They'll say something like, well, you know what it's like raising a boy who's in middle school, even though I've never mentioned that I'm a parent or what gender my child is or what age he is. So I was really worried that I would slip up and this thing about my therapist's father would come out. And eventually I did confess to him and all the air returned to the room. And we had this fantastic conversation about my father in a much deeper way than we would have if I hadn't told him about what I had found. So I was very much the patient. I knew as a therapist that I should have told him day one, but I, I didn't. I was just, um, you know, very much 
human in that room. Um, when you talk about your initial revelations and sessions with Wendell and about your fight with death, which he kind of seemed to, to get that that was what it was going to be about from, from early on. And it, it didn't get talked about until a little bit later. And I'm wondering if you felt like you came to terms with it by the end of the sessions. I do. Um, you know, he, he glommed onto that in the very first session when I was talking about what got me there, which was this breakup. And I was going because I, I wanted, like most, most patients, I think, who come to therapy, is we want validation. We want the therapist to back us up like our friends do. And I talk in the book a little bit about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. Idiot compassion is what our friends do. Like, wow, you dodged a bullet with this guy. You know, they, they, they want to make you feel better in the moment. And wise compassion is saying, I want you to look at this from a broader perspective. And so when I went in that first session, I told him the whole boyfriend story. I thought, of course, he's going to say, wow, you dodged a bullet, just like my friend said. But he didn't. And as I was talking about, now I've wasted all these years dating him, and I'm in my 40s, and half my life is over. And he glommed onto that phrase that I just, that felt like a throwaway phrase to me, half my life is over. And our therapy ended up being about that, much more than it ended up being about the boyfriend. The boyfriend thing, we worked through, but this half my life is over was really why I was there. And I didn't realize that before I made my first appointment. And so I think this, this question about how do we deal with where we are in life, what we can change, what we can't change, decisions we've made, decisions we have yet to make, um, how we're living in the present, what it means that we're very aware that we don't have forever. Um, I think those are the questions that I really did come to terms with in the work that I did with him. You mentioned in the book Yalom's, and I might not be saying his name right, so I apologize if not to, to you and him. That's right. Um, ultimate concerns, uh, existential fear, death, isolation, freedom, and meaninglessness. And you talk about what people come in presenting with and what you presented with um, initially was the kind of the boyfriend breakup. And yet what was really going on was one of those concerns. Is that fairly typical that beneath whatever narrative is first presented, that there's one of these concerns that's really at the root of, of where the problems are. Absolutely. And I think that's something that before I became a therapist, I very much was unaware of. And even in the first few years of doing it, um, it took me a while to see that happening and to really get to one of those existential concerns or several of them that I think people come in with. But I think that's where the freedom lies. I think the freedom lies in really getting to the, the deeper matter so that people can leave and not keep shooting themselves in the foot over and over and ending up in the same pattern because they're working through one of these existential concerns. So I think that, you know, when people come in, often the first thing that happens is they, they, they tell me about usually something external to them. I want to change my partner. I want to change my boss. I want to change my child. I want to change my parent. Um, and so they want to change somebody else. And then we get to how they can change, even though, you know, what they're saying is very real. You know, there, there are certainly difficult circumstances and difficult people out in the world. So I'm not discounting what they're saying, but I also want them to look at their own role in their own life. And once they can get to a place of, having some kind of agency, they start to make changes. But it's not just changing that one thing that they came in with. It's, it's really grappling with what those deeper existential concerns are about. Um, one thing that my therapist talked about early on was 
when I was talking about the, the concern about freedom is one of the existential concerns. And I was talking about feeling trapped and he was saying that, you know, a lot of people feel trapped by their childhoods or their circumstances now, or their partners or their jobs or, you know, their finances or whatever it is. Um, and he was saying, he said to me, you remind me of this, this cartoon and it's of a prisoner shaking the bars, desperately trying to get out. But on the right and the left, the bars are open. And the thing is that a lot of us don't want to look at the bars on the right, the openness on the right or the left. We don't want to see that because even though we want freedom, with freedom comes responsibility. And a lot of us deep down don't want to take responsibility for our lives. So I think that there's that internal battle going on that a lot of people discover in therapy and that once they kind of work through that, they have a lot more flexibility in in their day-to-day lives. Wendell also tells you, uh, don't judge your feelings, notice them, use them as your map, don't be afraid of the truth. Um, Why are we, and that was obviously not unique to you, why are we all so afraid of the truth, do you think, in our feelings? What's so scary about those, those things? I think that we label feelings as either good feelings or bad feelings. So good feelings are like joy, bad feelings are um, sadness, anger, envy. Um, And yet we always say, I always say to, to my patients with envy, follow your envy. It tells you what you want. And so I think that when we're sad, it tells us it's a signal to us. It's, it's a protective mechanism. It's an adaptive evolutionary mechanism that our feelings tell us, they guide us somewhere. If you're sad, why? Why are you sad? What does that tell you about what needs to change? If you're angry, what does that tell you? Um, It protects you from something. It means stay away sometimes, right? Um, So our feelings are are like a compass. You know, you want to follow them as opposed to avoiding them. But so many people come to therapy and they say, I'm feeling angry, sad, you know, whatever they're feeling, help me not to feel. And I always say, you don't want to not feel. You, you want to feel so that you can use those feelings to guide you to get you what you want. You also talk about the numbness not being a lack of feeling, that when people report right. being, being numb, it, it's not, they often mistake that for nothingness. Right. So numbness isn't nothingness. Numbness is an overwhelming feeling. You're so overwhelmed that you're shut down. So it's kind of like the fight or flight mechanism that we have. That's the emotional fight or flight mechanism where you're feeling so much that you start to feel what seems like nothing, but it's really a way to protect yourself from the intensity of the feelings that you're having. It's it's an indication that your feelings are especially intense not that you're not feeling anything. But I think the problem is sometimes people try to numb their feelings. And what they don't realize is that you can't mute one feeling without muting the other. So if you want to mute the pain, you're also going to mute the joy. And you're going to live in this kind of limbo where you don't really feel much. And that's not usually how people live a satisfying life. You talk about how lonely people are today. And that sort of part of that is, is, is this numbness and then filling this emptiness void, which isn't really empty, um, but with busyness and, and with just pushing forward and constant action. Right. Right. We, we distract ourselves constantly. I see that in therapy room where it's almost like before you could use Wi-Fi on an airplane, um, you know, the plane would land and immediately everybody would whip out their phones. Um, it's kind of like that at the end of a therapy session. Sometimes people will 
you know, the minute the session ends as they're walking to their door before they even get there, they whip out their phone. And the therapy room, I think what's so unique about it is that you spend 50 minutes straight face to face with another human being, listening, talking, hearing, um, really being present without anything pinging or dinging, without a phone on the table, without a screen on the wall. Um, it's a really unique experience. But people want to distract themselves the minute they feel a feeling in an elevator, online at the post office, wherever they are, it's very hard for them to just sit in their own minds. It's hard for them to be present with themselves. It's hard for them to be present with other people. And that's why a colleague of mine calls the Internet the most effective non-prescription short-term painkiller out there. And, and that's what it does. It, it helps us with our anxiety in the moment. But it doesn't help us with these, these underlying I think sense of disconnection and loneliness that so many people, even no matter what they're coming into therapy with, end up noticing that they're, even if they're surrounded by people, there's this underlying sense of loneliness because we aren't connecting organically with people face to face in the way that we used to. You talk about a novel you were reading that there's a great quote about the feeling of constant worry. Um, and that maybe that was something that you were looking to resolve with Wendell as well, to manage the certainty of, of uncertainty um, without sabotaging yourself and sort of be free again emotionally, that something that had been sort of, as you went along, been being stifled. Is that something you were yeah. aware of kind of going into that you wanted to resolve that? Or was that something that by resolving it, you realized it was something you needed to resolve? I think it was a process. As, as therapy is. And I also want to say that I think there's this misconception about therapy that if you go to therapy, you're going to talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you're never going to leave. And that's very much not what we do. If we do talk about our childhood, it, it, it's because it's in the service of how did that experience inform the present? How is it still informing the present? So it's not to blame people's parents or to go back and re-traumatize people. It's really to say, here are some things that you're still carrying around from your childhood, and here's how they influence the way that you act in your day-to-day -day life, and here are some core beliefs that you're still holding on to. And then you can, you can write a different future once you become aware of that. And so I think that this process of unraveling, it doesn't take forever, um, and it, it very much is organic in the room. So I didn't know that I was, you know, had all of this this anxiety and these other questions about midlife percolating beneath the surface. I thought I was just coming in for crisis management around this breakup. And I think that my, my experience was rather typical as you'll see with the other patients as well. And in that too, that you guys are kind of in this together because at one point in the book, you noticed that Wendell's had this transformation, um, his office, his dress. And is that a typical thing for the, the patient and the therapist are going to, as you mentioned, they're in this together, um, that they also transform a bit together as it progresses? Well, they do. I say in the book that we're mirrors reflecting mirrors reflecting mirrors, which is that when I'm the clinician in the room, I'm having to ask myself some of the same questions that my patients are asking themselves. I'm not, I'm not doing it in the room with them. I'm very much focused on them in the room, but they force me to, they almost hold up a mirror to me where if they're grappling with something in their own life, it makes me reevaluate something in my own life. 
Um, and the same thing when, when I go to therapy that, you know, I'm making changes as a, as a patient in therapy and my therapist is making changes in his own life. And one of them that, you know, that happened was, um, when I come back after he had been away for a couple of weeks and his office, which I had, I had commented on the decor in his office earlier in the book and how, um, you know, can I really, can I really trust this guy's judgment given his, his, uh, you know, the things that he chose to put in his waiting room. But, um, you know, but he's, he's totally redone the office and, and then he's had this transformation where now he's wearing stylish clothing and he looks different. And, um, and I asked him at, at one point in that session, you know, why now, why the changes? And he said, you know, sometimes changes like that sort of it coy, it was a coy response, but I think that, you know, I don't know how he changed in the course of our therapy because the therapy was about me and not him. But I know from the experience of being a therapist myself that we do change in response to our patients. You were talking about people's misconceptions about therapy, and, and you mentioned throughout the book, I think, misconceptions people have about other things. And one, the idea of that when we're afraid of something and afraid of our feelings, that not talking about it doesn't make it, what do you say, not speaking about something doesn't make it less real. It makes it scarier, which I think is the yeah. opposite of what people think. If I just push it away... Right. And I think, you know, that has to do partly with how we look at our emotional health versus how we look at our physical health. So if we are feeling, you know, something feels wrong in our body, something feels off in our body, say you're having, you know, chest pains, you'll go to your cardiologist before you have a massive coronary usually. But if something feels off emotionally, something feels not right, you're having some kind of pain, um, so often people won't go to get it checked out. Um, until they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack. And then they're in crisis and then they come to therapy. But the problem with doing that is that, first of all, it's harder to treat once, you, you know, once you've gotten to that point. And the other part of it is that you've struggled unnecessarily for a certain amount of time, whereas you didn't need to. So I think that part of that has to do with when we're feeling something emotionally, we think, well, I have a roof over my head and food on the table and people who love me. So what do I have to complain about? You know, what do I have to be depressed or anxious about? Or why am I still grieving after five years? I should be over this. So people try to talk themselves out of their feelings. And what they do is they try to tamp them down. But it's not like the feelings go away if you try to tamp them down. In fact, they get bigger because feelings need air. And if you don't give them air, they're going to find a way to push themselves out. It might be in the form of a behavior it might be in the form of self-sabotage or self-destructiveness. It might be in the form of your relationship start suffering. Um, it might be in the form of you become physically ill, that, you know, suddenly you start, you know, getting stomach aches or headaches. So the feelings will make themselves known. And so, you know, I really want people to understand that there's nothing shameful about struggling with something. It's part of the human condition. Nobody gets away scot-free when it comes to struggle. Struggling is part of the human condition. And we all feel so isolated, I think, in our struggles because we don't talk about them because everybody's trying to say, I'm not struggling, or they try to tell themselves that I'm not struggling. I'm, I'm doing fine. And everyone assumes that everybody else is doing fine and nobody's talking about it. And they think that that you know, adds insult to the injury. It makes the struggle even harder because not only are you struggling, but you're feeling alone in your struggles. And Wendell points out, out to you at one point, um, you know, not to diminish your pain or your feelings when you're sort of saying, well, in comparison, it's not so bad. And you talk about that, the idea that there isn't a hierarchy of pain. 
Yeah, yeah. I really, I really discovered as a therapist that there's not a hierarchy of pain, that pain is pain. And so I think that a lot of people try to, you know, they're embarrassed by their pain. They diminish it um, because they say, well, you know, compared to so-and-so, my pain is really not that, not that, um, you know, not that worthy of consideration. And I used to think, you know, even in the book where I go from treating Julie, who's, who's this young woman dying of cancer, to, you know, we're talking about tumors and scans and all of those very difficult things, going to the next session where somebody might say, my husband never initiates sex with me or the babysitter's stealing from me. I don't think that's trivial because, first of all, when your husband isn't initiating sex with you, it's very painful to feel rejected by somebody that you love. And with the babysitter stealing from you, it can be very painful that the person you trusted most in the world with, with the people who are most important to you has betrayed you. So I don't think that those things are trivial. And, and I think that what happens is people don't want to talk about it because they're so, they feel like it's not worthy of being talked about. And I really want people to see in the book that there isn't a hierarchy of pain. And I think also that it's easier to see our own problems mediated through other people's stories. And that's why I chose to tell these people's stories because I think that people will say, oh, that's me, or I do that, or I felt that. And it, it creates a space for them to, um, to give their own feelings some space. I loved what you said about Rita towards the end. You said she made us amazing strides, but she's not done. There'll be challenges ahead, setbacks, hard days, but she's equipped to meet them successfully, which is kind of the flip side of what you were saying, that people think, oh, therapy's going to go on forever. And I think there are other people that think, oh, well, I'll come in, they'll wave their magic wand and, and fix me, and all will be good, um, rather than being this process, you know, that we aren't static beings, and we're not in a static world, we just need to be equipped with skills that maybe we don't have and, and, and insights. That's right. But we always say, you know, in terms of insight, we say insight is the booby prize of therapy. And that's so true, because you can have all the insight in the world. But if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So if somebody comes to therapy each week, and they say, aha, now I understand why I keep getting in arguments in my marriage. But then they go home and they do the same exact thing in their marriage. Nothing's going to change. So the successful end of therapy, and again, you know, when we say end, it, it's sometimes a pause. Sometimes people will leave and maybe they'll come back another time. Sometimes I never see people again and they never return to therapy. And sometimes they might come back five years later because something else is happening in that person's life. But if they aren't making changes when they leave the therapy room each week, they're not making use of, of the work. So it's not just that you come and you understand your pattern or, or what's not working or something new about yourself. It's about what are you going to do with that information? How are you going to make tangible changes in terms of how you relate to yourself and how you relate to others? And so you say that this therapist's role is to be supportive, to understand the patient's perspective, but not necessarily endorse it, which you mentioned before, they're not going to be your best friend saying, yeah, what an awful guy. Um, and also, they aren't persuaders. Um, and they aren't going to also tell which you found with Wendell, you know, he's like, well, I'll just ask him, what would you do if you're not going to tell me what you think I should do? What then is the role, the primary role of the therapist in the relationship? That's right. I think so many people come to therapy because they want your advice. If they, if, you know, they want your validation, they want you to back them up. You know, isn't my, isn't my husband terrible when he does this? Right. Um, 
but they also want your advice. What should I do? What would you do? Just tell me what to do. And I understand that, by the way, because you can see me in my own therapy where I'm asking my therapist, what would you do? What should I do? Um, even though I know better. So, you know, I think that we, we don't give advice not because we're withholding information. It's because, first of all, there aren't clear-cut right or wrong answers for the majority of the decisions that we make. They're just simply different outcomes. Um, but also, I think a lot of people are gunning for you to make a particular choice. And then if it doesn't work out, they can blame the therapist instead of taking responsibility for the choice and learning from it. Um, and I think another reason, too, is that often people will present the story in a certain way, and we don't have all of the information because we're only hearing one person's side of the story. And so if we were to give them advice based on that one limited perspective, we wouldn't be giving the best advice because we don't have the full picture. So for all of those reasons, that's not what we do in therapy. What we do in therapy is we help people to understand more about the ways that whatever is not working for them um, is, is under their control. What can they change? What can they do differently? What are some of the ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving that are tripping them up so that they can make changes to those? And maybe in the last few minutes, I just want to talk about um, something that comes through the book throughout is wh why do people keep stepping in the same puddles? You say that like, that's a difficult thing. And that, that one aspect of that is that the self-destruction, it's serving the individual. It's not like they're a martyr, but there, there's something that they're getting from it. Um, why is it we sort of keep seeking out the same situation? And maybe one of the best examples of that is Charlotte. Yeah. Yeah, so Charlotte is somebody who really wants to be in a relationship. She's in her 20s, and she keeps choosing men who, you know, are not going to be those kind of people who, who want what she wants. Um, and she doesn't realize that she keeps stepping in the same puddle. She thinks that all men are like this. Um, you know, she she very much knows what she needs to do to change at a certain point when we get to that point in the therapy, but she still doesn't change because it, there's something that feels very uncomfortable to her about an available, mentally stable partner. Um, you know, it feels very foreign to her. She's not used to somebody who's present for her, who's available to her, um, who's not you know, who didn't do what her parents did, which was sometimes I'll be there and sometimes I won't and don't get too comfortable with me because inevitably I'm going to disappoint you and let you down, but then I'm going to come back and be there for you and I'm going to confuse the heck out of you. That's what her parents did to her and those were the kinds of men that she would choose. And so when there were men who would show up and be present and were interested in her and wanted a relationship, she was like, yeah, not attracted to him. Yeah, no chemistry. Um, you know, it was, it was, she was programmed to like a moth to flame to be drawn to something very different. And it required her to kind of reprogram herself and give these other men more of a chance so that she could kind of neurologically um, reset and see what it felt like to be with these people. And what she discovered was she was very anxious around these men who were available to her because it was a very unfamiliar place for her to be. And because in the past, whenever she started to feel good or safe, the rug would be pulled out from under her. She got very anxious with these men because she expected the rug to be pulled out from under her and it wasn't. And so she kept waiting. She was hypervigilant. Well, when is he going to disappoint me? When is he going to, um, 
you know, when is he, when is he going to show his true colors? Um, but he was showing his true colors. She just, she just wasn't used to people like that. So she really had to stop being so hypervigilant around these kind of people um, who were going to show up and be different from her parents. And you say, too, the only way for her to change the relationship with her parents was for her to be able to change. Because in the way she was reacting to men, she was also reacting in those same ways with her parents. And it seemed like kind of the the element that rings true in, in all of this as far as when your patients have gotten to a place where they have gone beyond just the inside and been able to change their their behavior is what you talk about with Frankel's book, A Holocaust Survivor, and that space between stimulus and response, and finding that space and that the power to choose your response lies in that. So maybe just for the the last couple of minutes, you could talk about that. Yeah, so I think with Charlotte, she was very much in a fight that she didn't realize she was in. And that fight was partly usually with the guy that she was dating, but also it was a, it was a historical fight. It was a fight that she was in with her parents. And she almost felt like if I can get a guy like, you know, we, we cling, we cling to the familiar in the sense of we're drawn to the familiar too. A lot of people say, well, I'm going to choose a partner who's very different from my parents because I, I didn't feel good around the way that things went in my childhood. Right. So then what happens is they say, I'm going to pick somebody very different, but unconsciously they pick someone who's very similar, even though on the surface, this person might look very different. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to go back and win this fight with their parents, which is I'm going to find a guy just like my parents, but this time he's going to love me unconditionally. And then I'll win the fight and then I'll feel good. And then all of my childhood trauma will be erased. And it never happens that way. So I think with the Viktor Frankl, um, you know, idea that he wrote about in Man's Search for Meaning, he said, it, it, between stimulus and response, there lies a space. And in that space lies, um, lies our freedom. I don't remember the exact quote, but it lies our freedom to, to choose. And I think that when we are presented with that stimulus, you know, somebody does something that feels uncomfortable, we have a choice in terms of how we respond. And that's something that a lot of us have to do, which is how can we respond differently, even though the external circumstance is going to be the same? How can we make a different choice? Because what happens is in our choice, we can either walk away from that circumstance or we can influence the way somebody responds to us by our responding differently. We can do a different dance, which will force them to do different dance steps as well, or one or both of us will leave the dance floor. And that's where the freedom is. We just need to find a therapist like you or Wendell. So <laughs> the next book is the How to Find a Therapist Like Me or Wendell. Laura, I just want to well, thank I you. Think that the book, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, that, I, I think that the book almost, you know, for, it, it's not when I say maybe you should talk to someone as the title. It's not that everybody needs to go to therapy. It's that people can benefit from therapy if they so choose. But it's also, I think, that um, I hope that the book helps them to see something about themselves that maybe they aren't already seeing through the stories that they're reading about. So whether or not they go to therapy, I hope that the book almost serves as a therapy session for them. I think it definitely does. And I was going to read this before we end. Here are some people who might benefit from Laurie Gottlieb's illuminating new book. Therapists, people who have been in therapy, people who have been in relationships, people have, who have experienced emotions. In other words, everyone. Lori's story is funny, enlightening, and radically honest. It merits far more than 50 minutes of your time, A.J. Jacobs. And it definitely does. And it's out. People can get it everywhere. You get a book. Um, 
And uh, Lori, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, enjoy your Thanks. next interview. I hope you're enjoying this ride. I know you've been on it before. Thank you. That was fantastic. But I, but I hope yeah, you're really no, enjoying it, it this time. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye.